Romans 14, 1, Paul says, Receive one who is weak in the faith, but not to disputes over doubtful things. For one believes he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats only vegetables. Let not him who eats despise him who does not eat, and let not him who does not eat judge him who eats, for God has received him. Who are you to judge another servant? To his own master he stands or falls. Indeed, he will be made to stand, for God is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day above another. Another esteems every day alike. Let each be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day observes it to the Lord. He who does not observe the day to the Lord, he does not observe it. He who eats, eats to the Lord, for he gives God thanks. And he who does not eat to the Lord, he does not eat and gives God thanks. For none of us lives to himself and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. For this end, Christ died and rose and lived again, that he might be Lord of both the dead and the living. But why do you judge your brother? Or why do you show contempt for your brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us shall give account of himself to God. And Father, we humbly ask just for the help and the assistance of your Holy Spirit as always as we open your word, Lord, we realize this is unlike any other book, any other thing written, Lord, that your spirit has inspired it, that it has your heart and your will contained within, and we want to receive and understand every thought and intent behind why you inspired and wrote this portion of Scripture for us in our lives. So, Lord, prepare us, give us an ear to hear what your Spirit would say to this part of your church this morning through this portion of your Word. We ask that you would give us an attentive spirit that would want to hear what your voice would say to us so please speak to us lord bless your word we're asking and we pray for your spirit's ministry in this time and we ask in jesus name and everyone said amen amen you may be seated you know as a parent of multiple children it is pretty quick that you begin to realize that each one of them are unique and very different and that's not, of course, just in physical appearance alone, but in who they are, in their personalities, in their temperaments, in their viewpoints, in their attitudes. And really the same is true regarding God's children spiritually as well. For you and I as Christians who are a part of now the family of God, as sons and daughters of God, brothers and sisters in Christ, that same reality is true for us. We may all have the exact same Heavenly Father. We all share the same older brother who is Jesus. We all even have, quite honestly, the same spiritual DNA inside of us which is the spirit of god the divine nature that's been given to us when we became a child of god at salvation yet still we're going to be different in certain ways individually and let me say this that's okay 
quite honestly, that's by design. Christians are also going to have some differences of perspective on certain issues. We're going to hold some different viewpoints. I've noticed that we all seem to have a few opinions. There's a few of those in the church, it seems, as I get to know people. We have different perspectives and outlooks on certain matters of life, and we not all are going to agree on every matter even of spiritual life. And let me go on to say, nor do I think that we need to or that we have to. It's okay to have those variations. What's more important is that we allow love to supersede our differences and learn how in love to respect one another and to receive one another and live in harmony together as any family should. And that we don't begin to fall prey to condemning and criticizing one another because of convictions that we may hold or, or, or differences of opinion or that we don't also begin to think it is our role to convert people to our conviction or to change people to our perspective maybe on a particular matter but rather we learn how through love to live in harmony as a family and that's what our passage of scripture is dealing with this morning the point Paul is trying to press home here is that Christians will not agree on all matters of the spiritual life nor do they need to if we just think historically from the church in Rome that Paul's writing to there in that day granted uh, there were people in that church from all different backgrounds. There were Gentile Christians who came out of a pagan background with no moral basis and a life of immorality and then they became born again, became a part of the church. In the same way in the church in Rome, there were Jewish Christians who were saved out of a very religious background, who had all types of a, a traditional religious upbringing and now they're born again and saved. And, and there would be diversities in their perspectives on certain things and opinions about matters. Uh, and, and people on top of that are just wired differently. People have different temperaments and different perspectives and convictions that they carry. And people are at different stages of spiritual maturity and as a result of those different backgrounds and various levels of spiritual maturity, guess what that brought to the church? Differences of opinions on different attitudes about certain things and even spiritual matters and what was right or what was wrong on certain areas. There was variation. And from what I've seen, the same is true in every church. In this congregation this morning, there are people who are here from all different backgrounds we may love Jesus, we're saved, we're born again, but maybe you had a very religious upbringing. Some of you, maybe you came from a background where you lived immoral your entire life. You never stepped foot in the church and then you got saved and you're born again. And we all come with those different backgrounds and baggage and traditions and viewpoints and opinions about certain things. The key is learning how to respectfully handle those differences in harmony and to realize, listen, Yes, there are essentials. There are certainly essentials in our Christian faith, things that are non-negotiables, that the Word of God is inspired, the, the, the deity of Jesus Christ, the Trinity, the, the resurrection of Christ. I mean, yes, there are certain fundamental essentials in the Christian faith, and we don't disagree on these. These are non-negotiables. Non they're essentials. But the truth of the matter is there are also a lot of non-essential matters, secondary issues, uh, and, and things that, let me say this, don't really matter that much in light of eternity. 
And therefore, they shouldn't be things that cause divisions and disputes and and kind of wedges between Christians or churches even for that matter. And that's what Paul's addressing here in our verses. Look with me again back in the first verse, if you would. He says, first of all, receive one who is weak in the faith. But notice, not for the purpose of disputes, that is arguments, debates over doubtful things. So Paul begins this section by asking for the stronger believers he says here, to patiently and graciously be receptive and welcoming toward fellow Christians who he says are weak in the faith. Now he's going to say in chapter 15, verse 1, we then who are strong ought to bear with, he says, the scruples of the weak and not please ourselves. So he's going to talk about this through the next uh, section here in our, in our verses The question should come to mind as we begin to go into this section, what does Paul mean by those who are weak in the faith? Well, again, wonderfully here, we don't have to speculate. We don't have to conjecture on what we think someone weak in the faith is because wonderfully, the scripture defines itself here for us. And it makes it evident to us, we'll see in these verses we're looking at ahead, that the one identified scripturally as weak in the faith is not the believer who exercises a lot of liberty in their convictions and flexibility in how they live their spiritual life, but rather, the scripture shows here, the one referred to as weak in the faith is the believer who holds very strict and stringent convictions. The one who who is very strict in lifestyle in relation to what they will do and what they won't do. That's the one here the Bible identifies, the strict and rigid one in their spiritual requirements and lifestyle that's identified as weak in the faith. You notice verse 2, he directly says, one believes he can eat all things, but he who is weak eats strictly only vegetables. So again, we see that the one referred to as weak in the faith is the one that lives a little more strictly, has a little more stringent convictions about matters of what they will do and what they won't do in their spiritual life. The reason that a believer may hold maybe strict standards or requirements that's referred to as weak here could honestly be a number of different things. Uh, Potentially, maybe this believer realizes humbly their own weakness in relation to certain areas of their spiritual life And because they realize their own weakness and humility, they don't leave themselves any room or opportunity to struggle. Uh, The idea of perspective may be of this believer, look, perhaps other people can enjoy those liberties and maybe they can exercise those liberties, but I know myself or I know my past and what I came from. and, And because of that, I'm just too weak to allow myself any freedom in that particular area. And that may be the reason that they live that way. Or perhaps this could also be a reference maybe to one who's a little less mature and rooted in the area of understanding the grace of God yet. And so because of that, they they aren't quite as settled what it means to live under grace and therefore they live a little more strict, a little more legalistically because they haven't quite come to a a place where Hebrews 13 describes of of being established in grace and really understanding what the grace of God means and how to live under God's grace. So the Bible says that since we're family, however, we should graciously receive and embrace the one who may be weak in the faith, making them feel welcomed just as they are right where they're at spiritually and never use that welcoming as just an opportunity to try and set up a platform 
to dispute with them or to change their convictions or debate with them over their issues. Notice he says not to dispute, verse 1, over doubtful things. Doubtful things. Now, what does he mean by doubtful things? Doubtful things are things that are not clearly addressed in the Scripture. Things that the Bible does not specifically give instruction or command about and the Scripture does not maybe directly prohibit or directly say is something that can or cannot be done. These are the non-essentials, as I said, the, the secondary things. Again, though there are definitely essentials that are clearly addressed in Scripture, there are also areas uh, of the spiritual life really where there are sort of non-essentials. The tragedy is a lot of times the non-essentials are the things that people end up d dividing and disputing and criticizing and judging one another over. Let me give you some examples. Paul mentions two in his day, but let me give you some examples from a modern perspective, certainly that we can relate to. For example, is it okay for a Christian to smoke? That's your conviction. Is it okay for a Christian to have tattoos or piercings? Is that spiritual or unspiritual? Is it okay for you know, a, a Christian to dance? And can Christians dance? Well, from what I've seen at some weddings, some can, some can. And some should and some shouldn't. You know, is there a right way or a spiritual way to educate our children? I mean, is it more spiritual to, to homeschool or to put your children through private education rather than to put your children through public school? Does that matter? Is, is one right? Is, is one wrong? Is one more spiritual? Is it okay for a believer to have a glass of wine with dinner if they're of legal age? You know, what about music styles in the church? Is there a right style or is there a wrong style? What's appropriate for the way in which a Christian dresses? Can a Christian girl wear a bikini on the beach? Oh! <gasps> I don't know. What's right? What's wrong? How about this? What about Santa Claus and Christmas trees? What about participating in Easter eggs and the Easter bunny? How about Halloween? These are, look, these are not fundamental doctrinal issues that are clearly addressed in Scripture. People may hold strong convictions. They may have opinions about them and they are entitled to do such. But these are sort of those disputable, questionable, non-essential issues that really are not clearly and directly addressed in Scripture itself. And because of that, they become areas of conviction of what's right and wrong in the Bible, saying we should not, therefore, be disputing over them or arguing or debating who's right, who's wrong, or, or I'm more spiritual because I hold this conviction and you're less spiritual because you hold that conviction. The Bible's saying that is the mistake in this area that's often made. And Paul addresses here two areas regarding hot buttons that were in the church in Rome, particularly the observation of certain dietary eating and also the observation of certain days. Look as he begins there in verse two. He says, for one believes he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats only vegetables. Now, the dividing issue here was not an issue of how a person ate regarding health reasons. I understand today people may, you know, choose to be a vegetarian for certain health purposes and, and, and that's, that's free for them to decide. Someone else may eat everything and, uh, you know, partake of, of everything. But, but the issue here is not a dietary thing. 
It wasn't a health issue. The purpose of this particular way of eating or not eating was for conscience sake in regards to what one personally believed. And that's how you can tell why he says there, for one believes he may eat all things. Another believes he can only eat vegetables. What Paul's addressing here, no doubt, in the Roman Empire, the ancient world, there was the worship of all kinds of deities and pagan gods and, and, and idols that they had altars to. And it involved sacrificing, offering animals on the altars of these idolatrous gods. And what was very commonplace is after the sacrifice was offered at a pagan temple, the remaining meat from that idol sacrifice was then taken down to the local meat market and was there supplied together with the vendors and sold among the meat market in the town square for food. And that was common knowledge of people in the culture and it was common knowledge to people who were Christians and now a part of the Church of Rome. And what Paul's addressing here is how believers in the church there had different views on eating that meat which may have potentially been offered to one of those idols in one of those pagan temples. Again, if you are looking for a little more on this, you can read 1 Corinthians 8 and 1 Corinthians 10. It addresses this same type of issue. And what Paul's saying is here, there were different views in the church in Rome. Some believers felt that they could eat whatever they wanted. They had no issue whatsoever of buying the meat at, you know, at Joe's meat market there down at the temple square. And, and, and it didn't concern them. They weren't worried about, well, I wonder what this was used for before it got hacked up and hung on the hook here or laid out on the table. And, and some believers, it, it didn't bother them. Their, their perspective was, look, it's a piece of meat. Who cares? The pagan idol's not even real. There's only one true God. It's, it's just a piece of meat. I'm going to cook it. I'll kill everything out of it anyway. There's nothing wrong with it. Now, there were other believers aware of those practices in the culture whose conscience would be troubled over that. And they were a little more unsettled and it bothered their conscience and they thought about things like, well, wait a minute. If, if I buy meat from this guy that potentially was used to make an offering at a pagan temple, th then am I financially supporting pagan worship? A am I contributing to that? And, and w wait a minute here. If, if, if I eat this and, and maybe this was first sacrificed to Zeus and then I ingest the same thing, am I like maybe making concessions here and becoming one with Zeus and his worshipers or something. And so some people's conscience would struggle with doing such. They felt it was wrong or evil. So they made the decision, Paul references here, verse two, where being weak in their conscience, they ate only vegetables. They just refrained from eating all meat so that they did not have to wrestle with that or potentially be guilty what they felt they could be of eating this meat from their perspective if that were considered wrong. So Paul goes on, verse 3 says, Let not him who eats despise him who does not eat. Let not him who does not eat judge him who eats, for God has received him. So Paul instructs these believers with opposing convictions. Very simply, he says, look, just respect one another. Don't despise or judge or condemn one another's views. Why? Because he says this is non-essential. This is, this is not a critical issue doctrinally. It's a matter of opinion, a personal conviction where freedom's allowed. You see what he says there, verse 3? Look at the text. He says, let not him who eats the meat despise the person who won't eat it and refrains. The idea of despise is to look down on and disgust or disdain. 
to, to look at them in a way where maybe they begin to become irritated or frustrated because of the strictness of the standard they hold of having to refrain from the meat where they start to feel a little bothered and, and their perspective is kind of like, come on, are you kidding me? It's prime rib. It's meat, man. Just eat it. What's it? And, and they become irritated because of the strict standard that's lived by. Now, on the other side, he says here, let not him who does not eat Judge the one who is comfortable partaking of the meat. And the word judge there means to be critical or condemn for wrongdoing as if being in error. And the idea here is the one who would not eat the meat becoming a little bit self-righteous because of the conviction that they held of abstaining and viewing the people who were participating as carnal or less spiritual. The idea is kind of looking at them critically with the attitude of, if they really loved the Lord, if they were really committed to Jesus, then they wouldn't eat that. They wouldn't do that. And, and kind of a self-righteous, legalistic perspective. And look, this same kind of stuff happens today. It happens today all the time where somebody looks at another believer who holds a different conviction and, and they look at them and they're, maybe they're, they're bothered and irritated because they hold a very strong conviction about, hey, I just, you know, I just, I, I don't participate. Like, come on, man, grow up. I mean, just stop being so immature. And people can get frustrated with one another. And in the same way, sometimes people can get a little super spiritual and think from a sort of a, a critical standpoint, well, if, if, if you were really spiritual, you wouldn't do that. Or if, if he was really spiritual, he wouldn't do that or she wouldn't dress like that. And over convictions, we can begin to do this. The reason Paul says don't do this is both parties, he says, are received by God. You see what he says, verse 3 there? He says, don't judge or despise one another for God has already received that person. The idea being here is because God's not choosing sides on the matter. Because from God's perspective, God received the one who would partake of the meat as someone who loved him and understood grace and that idols mean nothing. And therefore, God doesn't judge that person as less spiritual. Look, they understand grace and it doesn't bother their conscience. And in the same way, God also received the person who held the strict conviction and chose to refrain because he saw the purpose for why that Christian chose to refrain. And God was comfortable with that. And right where they're at, God received them and did not think any different or less of them. That word receive means to take hold of someone as a friend intimately. The point Paul's making here is if God receives both parties, then who are we to go rejecting one another? And if God's not making an issue over it and he's not that concerned about it, then why should we get so concerned about it? We should follow the example of God instead. He goes on, verse 4, to say, Who are you, he now begins the challenge, who are you to judge another servant? To his own master he stands or falls. Indeed, he will be made to stand, for God is able to make him stand. So Paul reproves here pretty strongly this tendency in all of our lives as Christians to judge one another, and the way he reproves it is by reminding us that other believers' accountability and approval is between them and God, between them and Jesus, who's their master. He says, verse 4 there, who are you to judge another servant? To his own master he stands or falls. The, the word servant Paul uses there is the domestic household servant. Now, if you were a domestic household servant, your role was to please your master. 
It was between you and your master. You knew what your master deemed acceptable and what the master said was unacceptable. And you worked the way you worked and did what you did or, or didn't do certain things because your job was to have the approval of your master. Now, if you were an invited guest into someone's home and all of a sudden you begin to try and direct or judge a domestic servant that belongs to someone else in their house, that would be stepping out of line. That's not your servant. You're just a guest in the house. That's that guy's servant. And, and so he's saying here, look, it's really not our business to critique and decide what a servant does, he says, because to his own master he stands and falls. And he's just reminding us here, his master's the one who's going to decide what's acceptable and unacceptable for him. And maybe they've already talked through that. They've already established that understanding of what's approved and what's not approved. And this is the same idea spiritually that's applied that we need to remember as believers, we're not each other's masters. We're fellow servants in Christ. The last time I read the Bible, there's only one master. His name's Jesus. And it's important for us as Christians to remember this, that we each answer to him and we need to realize, please hear me, that sometimes we can step out of line by over-evaluating someone else in their walk with Jesus and what they're doing and trying to decide what's acceptable or unacceptable in their life when really that's something honestly at the end of the day between them and the Lord. It's between them and Jesus. And, and Paul here addresses this because he wants us to remember that's who they're accountable to. Look what he says at the end of verse 4 there. He says there, Indeed, to his own mastery stands to fall, indeed he will be made to stand for God is able to make him stand. So he's reminding us that often there's a level of understanding between a servant and his master that honestly is between them and, and as individuals and we really don't know what they've worked through we really don't know the dynamics and all the information and what may concern us sometimes as being perceived as questionable activity right that may, that then probably how, how we'd spiritualize that as christians that that, that that's that's that looks questionable that appears questionable and what may be questionable to us honestly may not be that big of a deal or concern to God because he's their master. He hasn't vacated his authority over their life and, and that person is working through this and, and the Lord is able to sustain and uphold his servants. He knows their heart and what's happening. And again, I'm not talking about blatant sin, things that scripture clearly contradicts. Don't take this as a justification to say we should never speak into each other's lives and oh, cast the first stone, brother. Look, I'm talking about areas where, where there's, there's non-essentials going on. There's these kind of areas at times where we think, well, that, I don't know, that, that look, looks like he's slipping spiritually. It looks like she's slipping spiritually. And the Lord says, look, you think they're slipping and you see them as questionable, but God says, I'm able to make them stand. The Bible I read tells me in Philippians 1 that no matter where somebody's at spiritually, if God's genuinely began to work in them, he will be faithful to complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. Jude says that he is able to keep us all from stumbling and present us faultless before his throne. And this is just an area that we need to be really careful of as Christians. If we hold maybe a different conviction, we need to be careful, hear my words, not to jump to conclusions sometimes. 
and to automatically assume somebody's slipping spiritually when the reality is the Lord may say to us in that moment, who are you to judge somebody else's servant? To his own master he'll stand and fall. And, and I'm able to make him stand. You just trust me and let me work in their life. Verse 5, he says, one person esteems one day above another. So he deals with another issue now of days. Another esteems every day alike. Paul says, let each be fully convinced in his own mind. So some believers there in the church room felt certain days were more sacred and special than others. To esteem means to hold at higher value, a special. And some believers esteemed one day as more important to worship and really honor God. And they viewed that day as a sacred day, a special day. And they ordered their lives spiritually accordingly. Other believers, Paul says, verse 5, they esteem every day alike. In other words, they don't think one specific day of the week was necessarily critical to worship on and they felt every day alike was a day for God and, and to honor Him and to worship Him in some way and uh, it wasn't that critical to them to esteem one day over another. They could worship just the same on a, on a Tuesday evening as they could a Sunday morning. And it wasn't that critical to them. It wasn't a major thing in their life. What does the Bible say on that? It says right there, verse 5, just let each be fully convinced in his own mind. Let each be fully convinced in his mind. In other words, listen to this, there's liberty. God's saying you can make up your own mind. You can make up your own mind if you want to worship me on Sunday and that's your special day and then praise the Lord. If, if, if that doesn't work for you and, and you need to worship me on a Saturday evening at a Saturday evening church service, I'm not in eternity going to go, you know, when you change that Sunday morning, the Saturday night service, that, yeah, we're, we're, I don't know now. It, it's, it's, not, it's not that critical of a matter from God's perspective. Now, why customarily do obviously most Christians assemble for worship or church meetings on Sundays? Well, for two reasons. First of all, traditionally, that was when, I can tell you this much, that was when the early church did assemble and gather on Sunday mornings. First of all, because many Jewish Christians were still observing Sabbath and temple worship so on saturday they would observe sabbath still even as redeemed jews and then they would also then meet on sundays with fellow christians who were born again and worship on that day as well sunday was also the day in which jesus rose from the dead so his followers therefore traditionally found that day is the day they wanted to assemble and remember and celebrate routinely his resurrection and therefore they would assemble regularly on sundays I'll tell you another reason why it's existed to this day, especially in our culture, is because Sunday is the majority, uh, the day the majority of the culture is off from work. And they're available. Some people may work on a Saturday too, but most people typically are off on a Sunday morning. So it makes sense in a culture to assemble on the day when people are most available to assemble freely. Yet the Bible shows no strict requirement on a set day of the week that has to happen for meeting for worship or church services. Uh, again, what if a person's job, which they need to have to pay their bills, requires them to work on a Sunday morning? What if a person is hosting, again, a Saturday evening worship service? Or what about a midweek worship service? Does it have to be on a Wednesday? It's midweek. Can't be on a Tuesday. It's a midweek worship service. Can't be on a Thursday. You know, again, these are things sometimes we make issues over that are so unessential the more important issue, listen, is not exactly what day we worship on, 
The more important issue is simply this. It's that you make time to faithfully worship the Lord. That's the bigger issue, the thing that's the heart of the matter, that our personal life, we'd worship the Lord and we would also make it a priority that we do need to assemble. Again, the writer of Hebrews says that we should not be forsaking the assembling of ourselves together. The important thing is that we do find a day, we do find a group of believers and that we do assemble together regularly. But remember, again, some people may diligently worship the Lord on a Sunday morning and they are diligent and faithful and they will never miss a Sunday morning. And they worship the Lord on that special Sunday morning, but then they don't worship Jesus at all the other six days a week. That's not good, right? Other people may not be able. Circumstantially, they're restricted. They can't attend a Sunday morning church service. But perhaps they're worshiping Jesus all week long and walking with him and they're going to a, a meeting on a Tuesday night with you know 15 believers or they're attending a Saturday night church service or a Wednesday evening meeting faithfully. Again, these are the areas that he's trying to bring to our attention. Verse 6, he says, He who observes the day observes it to the Lord. He who does not observe the day to the Lord, he does not observe it. He who eats, eats to the Lord. He says, he gives God thanks. He who does not eat to the Lord, he does not eat and gives God thanks. So again, we begin to see here, the central issue is that we're not seeking to please men. We're not seeking to get the approval of other servants uh, as Christians, but we're doing whatever we do, Paul says, for the primary reason of pleasing the Lord. You notice the repetitious language there in verse 6, to the Lord. You notice how he said that like four times in that one verse. Whatever we do, whether we refrain or we indulge, whether we honor one day or we honor every day the same, he says whatever we do with a grateful heart, we do it to the Lord. The idea here is trying to indicate whether it's the person who comfortably participates in some liberty or freedom or whether it's somebody whose conscience makes them have to refrain from a certain area where there's liberty to decide, the motivation should always still be the same. I do it as unto the Lord. The reason I don't do this is as unto the Lord. The reason I do this is unto the Lord. They've asked the Lord, they've sought his approval and their conviction is this is what the Lord would have me do in this particular area. And, and this is the thing that's the matter. Paul goes on, verse 7, saying, For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, notice again, we live to the Lord. And if we die, he says, we die to the Lord's. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. So because, Paul reminds us, as Christians, we all belong to the Lord, and he's our master and we're his servants, our primary concern should not be about what his other servants are doing, our primary concern should be, hey, I have a master and I'm a servant and therefore my master is concerned about what I'm doing and I'm going to have to give account to him and I need to make sure I have his approval and it means that in every area of my Christian life, listen, I should be saying, Lord, is this acceptable to you? Is what I'm participating in pleasing to you? Lord, are you approving this? Not just am I approving it. Look, let's balance this out. Well, I'm okay with it. I'm fine with it. But is God fine with it? Oh, don't criticize me. You don't. Is God fine with what you're doing? That's to be the primary concern because we belong to him. He says we don't live or die unto ourselves. We live or die unto the Lord. He says in verse, for we are 
the Lord's. As a Christian, we need to remember, we have given up our rights and freedoms unto Jesus who purchased us as a servant by redeeming us out of the slavery of sin. And he is now my rightful owner over my life and the one I'm to be occupied serving in life and death. Paul says, 1 Corinthians 6.20, you were bought at a price, therefore glorify God in your body and your spirit, which are God's. He says in 1 Corinthians 10.31, therefore what, whether you eat or drink or whether whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. That's to be the central issue. Now, for the follower of Jesus, I'm not supposed to be living unto myself. As a follower of Jesus, Christianity indicates I live for him. I do what pleases him to earn his approval. But by the same token, what he's trying to drive home is if spiritually, I don't even have the right over my own life anymore because my master has a right over me as a servant, if I don't even have the right to my own life, then certainly I don't have the right to decide what's right in your life and determine what's spiritually acceptable for you and, and, and not. I don't even have the entitlement to my own life anymore. So therefore, in light of that, it goes without saying, I really don't have the entitlement to be overly bearing on someone else's life. In John chapter 21 there's that story where Peter is walking with Jesus and he turns seeing John behind him and he says, Lord, what, what, what about that guy? What, what are you doing in John's life? And Jesus says to Peter inquiring about John's life, what is that to you? You follow me. In other words, let me translate what Jesus was saying. He was saying, Peter, it's none of your business what I'm doing with John. You got enough on your hands just trying to follow me. You remember that deny me three time thing, Peter? Remember that? I just brought you back from that. Remember that walking on the water and then drowning? Remember that part, Peter? I think you could be busy enough just keeping track of yourself. I'll take care of John. Don't you worry about John. You just stay focused on following me. Paul says, verse 9, for to this end, Christ died, or for this reason, Christ died and rose and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. Paul's trying to say the very reason that Jesus even came, lived, and sacrificed, and died, and rose again was with an end goal in mind. And look what the end goal was here in verse 9. So that he may have personal lordship over every one of his followers as their authority and their judge and the one who would rule over their life. Jesus accomplished what he did in his life, his death, his resurrection, and his present life with a primary goal. He wanted to have direct lordship over each and every believer's life himself. He didn't want there to be intermediaries. He didn't want a believer to have to go through another believer. He wanted to have direct lordship where he could lead, he could guide, he could speak to each believer. And that's why, again, for us to overstep our bounds sometimes as Christians and start to you know, with our spiritual opinions or perspectives, start to play the Holy Spirit in another person's life and start to somehow think that they need to answer to me or have my approval. Listen, that's starting to interfere, interfere with the lordship of Jesus. And he paid a great price for that lordship over that Christian's life. And I need to humbly respect that in a fellow believer's life. That place of authority and lordship, Jesus earned that. And he's a little entitled to that. That's why Paul, listen, even as 
an apostle, a pastor. Paul the apostle, an ordained leader with God-given authority, said these words, 2 Corinthians 1. He says, for we do not have dominion over your faith. We're fellow workers for your joy. Paul was saying, look, we do not have the right to dominate and control what you're doing in your faith. That's between you and the Lord. We're here to work and help and encourage and teach you and counsel you, but we are not in control of what you ultimately do. That's something that's a line that we can't cross. That's between you and Jesus. We're not to dominate you or control you or direct you. Again, Paul repeats his rebuke and challenge to tendency of our error in verse 10. Look what he comes back to again. He says, but why do you judge your brother? Or why do you show contempt for your brother? Look, perhaps this morning, I don't know, maybe you've been judging, finding fault with a fellow Christian recently or showing contempt towards some matter or issue in, your, in their life. And perhaps the Holy Spirit would just simply say to you, why are you doing that? Why are you doing that? That's not something that I want you to do or I've asked you to do, nor really do you have the right to do. Maybe Jesus, who earned the lordship over every Christian's life, may even firmly say to us at times, look, please don't try and take my role in someone else's life. Please let me be lord in their life and that they could learn how to respond to my lordship. Let me handle and direct them. And if there is indeed maybe something that does need to change, and maybe it does, it's an issue of them learning submission to Christ and learning how to respond to his lordship. And it is healthy to let them learn that, to let them figure that out, to let them work that out in their lives. Paul goes on to say, verse 10, for we shall all, one day we're all, he says, going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ for it's written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So he just reminds us, which lets us just let go of this concern sometimes that every believer one day is going to be judged and evaluated by Jesus for how they lived their life, how they ran their race spiritually and performed as a believer. He says there in verse 10, for we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Now important to define here, when he talks about the judgment seat of Christ here, he's not talking about the great white throne judgment which we see in the book of Revelation, which there is a judgment in relation to a person's eternal destiny. This reference here to the judgment seat of Christ is a separate and distinct evaluation or review of how the believer lived their life as a Christian in relation to how they performed and how they served the Lord as a follower of Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.10 says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. The Greek term used here when it talks about the judgment seat of Christ is the bema seat. It's a term that referred to the Greco-Roman games, the sports games in that day, where sports officials would sit higher up and they would watch and they would view the games, whether it was a race or it was a boxing match or some type of competition. And these judges from their Bema seat would watch the event and the competitors. And then at the end of the competition, you would then appear before those judges to be evaluated or reviewed for how you competed and what you did. If you broke the rules, 
They disqualified you. But it was their right to disqualify you. And if you did well or however you competed, they also would reward you accordingly, according to your performance, first place and second place and so on and so forth. And this is the idea here the Bible uses in the same way as we run our race in faith. That there's going to come a day as a Christian where each believer will appear before the judgment seat of Christ, the Bema seat of Christ, and we're going to be reviewed for our performance. It tells us in 1 Corinthians 3, if anyone builds on this foundation using silver, gold, and costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, his work will be shown for what it is because that day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire. The fire will test the quality of each man's work. If what he's built survives, he'll receive a reward. If it's burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, but only as one escaping the flames. See, the Bible is telling us this is not a judgment of your eternal destiny. That was settled the day you accepted Jesus. What this is is a review and evaluation of how you then ran your race from the moment the starting gun blasted off when you accepted Christ. And we're going to be rewarded or not rewarded according to how we lived. But only Jesus is the one who is qualified to judge. And this is something I'm really thankful for. He's not going to be taking input from other people. He's not going to turn to John and say, what do you think about Tony? What do you think? I mean, that last lap was pretty, pretty weak, huh? He's not going to do that. He is going to, from his authority in place, make those decisions. Paul even saw this reality of personal accounting to God in the Old Testament. He quotes here Isaiah 45, where God said, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow, notice the emphasis, to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. Again, not to another person, but to God. You ever been in a sports game before? I, I've coached before athletics with my kids and stuff. You ever been in a sports game before when the fans start trying to referee the game? Isn't that utterly annoying? Like, would you shut up and let the ref ref? That's his job. He's the official. And I think sometimes spiritually we can be guilty of this. You know, we're watching each other compete. And like... Fans, we're, we're trying to ref each other's lives sometimes. And I, I think, well, maybe the Lord probably doesn't say shut up, but he probably is like, would you p- quiet down, please? <laughs> let's pray. You, you talk about that, but let's not go overboard with it. He says, look, they're all going to stand before me. Look how he concludes our section, verse 12. He says, so then each of us shall give account of himself to God. Each of us shall give account of himself to God to God that is a promise there is a guarantee of what lies ahead one day we will all answer to God we will all answer to God as a steward for how we lived our life what we did in relation to our freedoms the account indicates a verbal review of what's recorded and documented and notice the topic as we give account before God of himself of ourselves When you and I stand before God one day to give account, it's not going to be about the life of another believer. It's not going to be what someone else did or didn't do. It's not going to be complaining about others. And God's not going to ever request information from you about another person. So so tell me about him. what What do you think about him? God's not going to do that. Now, if that's the case, that tells me this personally. I shouldn't be gathering files on other people. I should just be focusing, being faithful to Jesus the best I can because one day I'm going to stand before Jesus all by myself. And look, in relation to what we're saying, let me conclude with this. 
I don't think on that day the Lord is going to say when you stand before him to give account, I don't think on that day he's going to say, so tell me, did you have a Christmas tree? And what was up with that tattoo thing? And did I notice one time when you were driving to church, you listened to a secular music song? And I mean, you were doing so good but then there was that one time you danced at that wedding. Ugh. Not only embarrassing, we're talking, we need to reevaluate the books here on that one. I think there are going to be much weightier issues that Jesus is concerned about. Those are the issues that I think we need to be concerned about. And instead of running by other people in the race and mocking what they're doing or not doing, we should be trying to encourage and strengthen one another to run the distance, the full marathon, and doing what we can to support one another. Amen? Let's stand together. Father, help us, we ask and pray, to consider these things and, Lord, to let them soak into our hearts. Lord, to realize that there are, Lord, areas where we will hold different convictions over non-essential issues that your word's not directly clear about. And Lord, forgive us where we've failed in this area and help us, Lord, to walk in love, to grow in these areas, to embrace and to encourage one another and to keep our focus upon the main thing that matters most to you. Lord, we ask that your spirit would help us walk these things out obediently. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.